This episode of New Politics was released on the 9th of April, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the worst possible way to enter an election campaign for Scott Morrison, but does he have enough time or the skill to turn this around? And we talk to Jane Caro about public education, aged care and her campaign to enter federal politics. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The Liberal National Coalition is entering the federal election campaign in the worst possible shape and just when Scott Morrison feels that he might be on the verge of getting some clean air, along comes another Liberal Party Member of Parliament providing a free assessment. My way or the highway is one thing to say to your own members in the Liberal Party, but for that attitude to spill out and impact funding decisions, public funding decisions that flood victims are depending on, is outrageous. Um, but no, I can't bring myself to vote for this government after what occurred here. That was Catherine Cusack. She's a Liberal Party MP in the New South Wales Parliament and she's announced to the world that she's not going to vote for the Liberal Party. And if you've got difficulty trying to get your own party members to vote for the Liberal Party, you're also going to have great difficulties convincing the Australian electorate to vote for the Liberal Party. The budget announced by Josh Frydenberg hasn't had the same effect or the effect that the coalition was hoping for within the electorate. All the opinion polls are at a stubbornly low level and with a month to go before the next federal election, it looks like it's going to be very difficult for Scott Morrison to turn everything around in time. He is not that skilled of an operator. He tends to manage up and with Prime Minister it becomes very difficult to manage up because up is the general populace of Australia and he doesn't really know how to engage with the general populace. He's one of those guys who you hear about these, you know, oh, we've paid big money to bring this guy in. He was brilliant at his last job and, ah, we're so lucky to have him and it becomes very quickly apparent that he probably wasn't brilliant at his last job or the one before or the one before. But he's good at talking himself into positions, but not actually very good at doing them once he's got them. And I think we're seeing that now. The Liberal Party itself is in the midst of an extremely bitter, brutal, expensive civil war between its its various factions. We've had the court case come down where the court argued internal liberal political affairs aren't really the purview of the court unless a law has been broken. And I can't really argue with that. It's one of the few court cases they've won, and it may come back to bite them because 
there's now 12 candidates that they can parachute into a seat, but at the cost of how many volunteers, how many people passionate for Liberal Party support and the person they want to vote in for local members. So he's in a lot of trouble. He was roused on by the disability pensioner in Newcastle. Michael Tauk did an interview after uh, 15 years showing his view of Scott Morrison on, on the project. And the Labor Party has actually been tight and professional. Now, we've been here before. This was the situation in 2019. And a lot of people thought that Bill Shorten was going to become the next Prime Minister of Australia, and with good reason. Uh, the difference now is that if you looked very closely and you squinted a bit, you could see things happening in seats that you mightn't quite understand from the outside, but you could see attitudes in particular seats changing. Well, this is one of the worst positions for a federal government leading into an election campaign in history, I'd say. Now, of course, we didn't have opinion polls or a general idea of the sentiment on elections during the Great Depression or during the Second World War. David, you and I weren't around at that time. But the position for the Morrison government is actually worse than Labor's position in the lead up to the 2013 election, the position for the Liberal National Coalition in 2007, and and worse than the Labor Party in 1996. And in all of those elections that I just mentioned, it didn't really matter what the government did to try and change its fortunes. Nothing, absolutely nothing worked. And the electorate had already made up its mind way before those elections. And in all of those elections, the government of the day just couldn't make up enough ground to get even close to winning the election. And we also have to take into account that Morrison's position is far worse than any of those elections that I just mentioned. And of course, there always has to be those caveats because anything can happen during an election campaign and events can change. And there's also the nature of the COVID pandemic that we have to take into account, and that's very unpredictable. We've already got the Labor campaign director afflicted with COVID. Other key members or even the leader could contract COVID, but so could other Liberal Party MPs as well, and so could Scott Morrison again. But there is one election in the past that does stand out, and that's the GST election in 1993, where Paul Keating was in a similar position one month out from the election, not as bad as Scott Morrison's current position, but he managed to win that election. But there was a signature issue in that election. Keating made it all about the GST. And Scott Morrison had his moment in 2019, that election that you just mentioned before, when he made the election all about Bill Shorten and managed to win that election from a similarly poor position. The difference is that Scott Morrison is now in a far worse position than anyone before in history and he needs everything to go right for him when everything is actually going wrong and, and and of course things can change dramatically john howard was in a lot of political trouble in the lead up to the 2004 election but once he announced who do you trust on the economy every problem that he had just disappeared it dissipated and people started focusing on those issues that mattered to them the most now morrison cannot actually ask who do you trust on the economy because he's racked up a billion dollars in debt, wages have stagnated, and he presided over the first recession in 30 years. And he can try running on the economy, but it's just not going to work in 2022 in the same way as it did for John Howard in 2004. The other thing with John Howard, John Howard could point at Gough Whitlam and his alleged mismanagement of the economy. Now, a lot of that, what you may call mismanagement, was to do with the fact that Whitlam had started opening up 
the economy in a much more laissez-faire type of way. He'd started cutting tariffs, for example, which had short-term impact on jobs. He had the huge spending on Australian, the public service, on education, on, on all of that, and that led to an increase in debt. And this was at the time where neoliberal economists had started saying that debt was a bad thing. Of course, debt itself is not a bad thing. The Whitlam debt turned out to be a very good use of debt, uh, free education, free health, although they dismantled that very quickly. But with a Murdoch press, a lot of the memory of Whitlam was that he was a bad economic manager and that he'd done this and he'd done that and that Australia was in a worse off position because of his stuff. And let's be honest, 12 years of Hawke and Keating's fairly good management, which was hampered by the recession we had to have, that's a Keating quote, was able to get people to think of that doubt. Now, Morrison doesn't have this because the economy was better under Rudd and Swan, and people remember that it was better under Rudd. With Morrison, really, all people are aware of, I think, is Barnaby Joyce's travel envoy stuff, Morrison's photo opportunities, There's no infrastructure, there's no big project, there's no expansion of anything, there's no even efficient shutting down of anything. They just cut and cut and cut and spent money on nothing. And that's what he's got to get over, I think, and I don't think he can get over that. Well, a few people have asked us, well, how bad are the polls for the Liberal Party at the moment, or the Coalition, and can we trust them anyway after what happened in 2019 when they all predicted an easy Labor victory only for the coalition to claim a narrow victory for themselves well i can tell you right now these are terrible polls and we had four during this week and all of them are not very good at all for scott morrison and the liberal national coalition the morgan poll reported 57 percent to 43 percent against the coalition in two-party preferred voting news poll was 54 percent to 46 ipsos showed 55 to 45 and the essential poll was effectively 53 to 47%. And on average, it's around 55% for Labor and 45% for the coalition. So that's a 10-point margin. And all of these polls are showing election-losing positions. And we also have to remember that the budget was released just last week to great praise from the usual supporters in the media. And the budget was seen as Scott Morrison's last chance to impress the electorate, but it sunk like a lead balloon. And it's also been overshadowed by the other events coming out from the Liberal Party. Last week, we had one senator accusing Scott Morrison of being a bully, lacking a moral compass and not fit to be Prime Minister. This week, there's another Liberal MP announcing that she's not going to vote for the Liberal Party at the federal election. Now, the budget was well received by the mainstream media, not so much by leading economists and certainly not so much by the public. And we had the usual coalition cheer squad at News Corporation and the ABC promoting the budget at every opportunity. But then going on to ask Anthony Albanese how he was going to pay for the $2.5 billion that he's promised to fund all the things that he wants to do in the aged care sector. But they also forgot to ask Josh Frydenberg how he's going to pay for the $5.5 billion for cancelling the French submarines contract. But it's almost like a case where the Liberal Party is always got access to the magic money tree that exists somewhere out the back of Burke, which Labor doesn't seem to have the same access to. But whatever the case is, I really don't think it matters at this stage how much the media still wants to push the case for the return of the Morrison government. It seems like it's all falling upon deaf ears. 
I, I said before, there's a change in the air. Now, as for opinion polls, they have actually got the state elections right. And in fact, the only thing they got wrong was the extent of the landslide in, in Western Australia, which was probably, I don't think even if we trusted them more, that was still fairly unpredictable. And they didn't get it that wrong. I think there was a case of they looked at the numbers and thought there's no way the Liberal Party will be wiped down to nearly nothing. So we, we need to rejig some of these figures to make it what would be a more accurate figure. And I, I'm not accusing them of dishonesty there. I think they were looking at it as there's still some kind of error in here that doesn't make sense. So the polls are more accurate than they were, I think. The other thing too is that even allowing for a margin of error of 5%, which isn't really a margin of error statistically, Labor is still ahead. I think it's either going to be an absolute landslide or they're just going to scrape in. I don't think it's going to be a nice, safe five or eight seat victory that's comfortable but not spectacular. I think it's either going to be a total wipeout or almost a hung parliament if they win. As I said, I, I don't trust my own judgment at the moment only because it is well documented that Morrison cheats and will stoop to any level to make sure that his cheating is effective. Well, I guess all of this shows just how quickly the fortunes can change in politics. Just a few weeks ago, all the pressure was on Anthony Albanese, and that was the media concocted pylon about Senator Kimberly Kitching and the mean girl narrative that was being pushed by the media. But this time, the pressure is on Scott Morrison. And the other thing to point out is that it's not being fueled by the Labor Party. It's not primarily being fueled by the media, although they are reporting on it. It's all coming from the Liberal Party. And it's not often that MPs and senators dump on their own party, but if it does happen, it tends to happen in the middle of a term. But so close to an election, this is very, very unusual. And, and following on from what Senator Fiaravanti Wells announced in the Senate last week, the media has finally latched on to Scott Morrison's pre-selection in the seat of Cook in 2007. And all of this information has been publicly available since at least 2009, probably a little bit longer. And we've referred to it constantly over the past five years. It's, it's almost like clockwork at New Politics. Every five or six episodes, David, you and I talk about how Morrison completely obliterated his party opponent, Michael Toke, in that pre-selection battle in 2007. And here's some of the things Michael Toke has said about Scott Morrison. Well, you know, at, at the time, it's, he was desperate and it suited him to play the race card. Um, I guess when you get into Parliament and become the Prime Minister, you're not an operative anymore. You, you, you've got the seat you want. You may not have to sort of lower yourself down to those tactics. And I'd like to think, I, I, I'm not saying he's a racist. I, I, I don't know him well enough, but he's certainly used racism, Islamophobia, you know, bigotry with, with refugees, with dead families of dead refugees, with migration policies, and it's been dumped on by his own side. We've also reported his sacking from Tourism Australia and the Office of Tourism in New Zealand in the early 2000s. And all of this is not so secret information, but the mainstream media hasn't wanted to touch it with a barge pole. But they have been more forthright since Fiera Vanti Wells made her speech in Parliament. They've also reported that Morrison was backgrounding Liberal Party branch members in 2007 about Michael Toke's Lebanese heritage and claiming that he was a secret Muslim and... Not that there's anything wrong with being a Muslim. Cat Stevens is a Muslim. Muhammad Ali was Muslim. Malcolm X in the Australian Parliament. Ed Husich is a Muslim. 
Anne Ali is Muslim, and in the New South Wales Parliament, Jihad Dib is also Muslim as well. But we just know that Scott Morrison would have weaponised this and played the hard right-wing racist card to achieve his goals to become the member of Cook and ultimately the Prime Minister. Now, generally, we should be striving to get good people into Parliament and the best people possible to represent the community. But if the media had done their job and the job that we expect of them, and reported all of these matters with greater detail and with more scrutiny, the person who, in my opinion, is one of the worst people ever to enter Parliament, and there's been quite a few bad ones throughout history, he never would have made it to the position of Prime Minister. But as it stands, a compliant media who refuses to report anything too negative about Scott Morrison over the past 10 to 15 years, they've facilitated and promoted the worst Prime Minister in Federation. There's a lot of people who really need to think about why they are political journalists. Not all. There are some very, very good political journalists in Australia. Paul Bongiorno springs to mind. Malcolm Farr springs to mind. Catherine Murphy springs to mind. Now, I don't agree with their takes all the time, but that doesn't mean to say that they always try to be fair. They always try to be balanced. They always try to call out the worst things about the government. When good things happen, they try and be fair, which is what we try and do here. So I take it that they're just following our leads. (laughs) But it's wrong to tar them all with the same brush. Australia's big problem is that it is dominated by the debate led by Sky News, who nobody watches. We actually get bigger figures than Sky News in some of their shows. You get the ABC filled with Sky journalists guesting on shows like Q&A and Insiders. Their only role seems to be to disrupt the conversation. And I don't know if this is seen as good television because it's conflict or if there's a deeper strategy, but either way, it doesn't work. Some of us want to watch good, intelligent discussion, even by people who don't agree with each other that's not totally undermined by the IPA or Sky News journalists trying to derail whatever's going on in an attempt to get people to turn off. And it's a weird business model because they they don't want people listening to them. They want people to look at the headline, but they want people to be so thoroughly fed up with the system that they disengage. And this is where you get, to a smaller extent, the anti-vaxxer crowd, the QAnon crowd, people who have been so turned off by the system that they've become radicalised. It's disturbing and requires a lot of reform, which I don't think the Labor Party is prepared to do. We will see about that. And I don't think can be done in a term anyway. I think it's a two or three term strategy of being able to dismantle the system and rebuild it in a way that is fair, that keeps jobs, that keeps a, a vibrant press and has to allow for new new ways of getting news too, including podcasting, online, blogs, vlogs, Instagram, TikTok, all of that. I'm not going to be too hard on either party for not starting the reform because it's hard, but sometimes the hard stuff is the stuff you've got to do first. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon.
Now, just going back to the pre-selection issue for the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, so some things have actually gone right for Scott Morrison over the past few days, and the New South Wales Court of Appeal has adjudicated that the three-person junta that's taken control of the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, and that's Scott Morrison, Dominic Perrottet and Christine McDiven, and in case you didn't hear it, Christine McDiven is a woman. Scott Morrison kept on pointing that out during the week. But the court has adjudicated that they've got the right to pre-select those candidates in 12 seats in New South Wales. And that's a quarter of the seats in New South Wales. And that's the sort of action that Vladimir Putin would take during an election in Russia. But he actually chooses all of his candidates and then goes on to invade Ukraine. So it probably hasn't reached those proportions yet in New South Wales. But this is absolutely outrageous and once again the media reported this as a victory for scott morrison instead of reporting it as bad news for democracy and it's also something that has never really happened before if the labor party parachuted that many candidates in new south wales and to be fair the, those parachutes have been getting quite a bit of a workout in new south wales labor but not to this level. And if, if the Labor Party did this, there would be an absolute outcry from the media. Maybe one, two or three seats, but 12, that's totally over the top. And and also pre-selecting candidates a month out from an election, it doesn't give them really that much time for their candidates to prepare. But I guess we do have to remember that in the seat of Reid, Fiona Martin for the Liberal Party was selected one week before the election was announced in 2019 and then went on to win that seat. So it might not be such a big deal there. But the bigger issue is the removal of rank and file members of the Liberal Party in making a choice about who they want their candidate to be. That's the real issue here. And we've discussed this before. The occasional parachuting in of a candidate from outside may not be appropriate, but I would put it that you get your best local people in first because they best represent the local area. If you can't find someone, they're not available or there, there is no one, then sure, we've got a high-profile candidate who might fit very well into this seat. On the Labor side, Christine Keneally was uh, parachuted into the seat of Benelong to face uh, John Alexander. And a lot of people thought she'd win, and I think she did very well, but she didn't get in. Now, they were able to find her a seat in the Senate where she's performed fairly well. It becomes a vexed issue. The court really can't interfere in lawful internal policies of any party, even if they're immoral and wrong. The court's role is not to judge on morality or ethics, it's to judge on the law, and I think the court was right. And on that issue of parachuting his own candidates into these 12 seats in New South Wales, Scott Morrison claimed that he was intervening to save the political careers of Susan Lay and Fiona Martin, and he's using this to stand for the women in the Liberal Party. It's almost like he wants to be the guy in armour riding in on a white horse, but this has got nothing to do with standing up for women in the party. It's got nothing to do with doing the right thing democratically. This is all about Morrison and getting his own people into Parliament. But there's also that other issue brewing that you referred to before. It's the battle over the direction of the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party of Morrison is a true right-wing conservative reactionary party along the lines of extremists such as One Nation. And we've pointed this out before. Australia is neither an extreme right-wing or an extreme left-wing society. There are pockets of it around the country, for sure, but it's somewhere 
in the middle. And trying to take the electorate too far to the right will have a political backlash, and especially at a time when people are looking to government to do more for the community. And as Catherine Cusack said, she's the Liberal Party MP from New South Wales that we mentioned before, the Liberal Party of 40 years ago that's gone. It's been replaced by a new guard of conservative people who have no interest in democracy, no interest in community, no interest in anybody else except for their narrow-minded, bigoted ideological agendas, which probably reached their use-by date about 40 years ago. And that's what's happening within the Liberal Party at the moment. And, and this is all usually done by political parties when they're in opposition for a long, long time. They try and redefine themselves, and they definitely do it behind closed doors. But all of this is currently being played out in the public for everyone to see, and what and it's all happening one month before an election. And I'm not quite sure what it is, whether it's ideological overreach or arrogance or just this belief that whatever they do, it doesn't really matter because they've managed to get re-elected over the past two elections without doing much to deserve it. And they're probably expecting that the same thing will happen this time around as well. Now, all of these complaints that are coming through about Scott Morrison and the current Liberal Party... and we have to take into account that it's all coming from the Liberal Party. It's almost like the Labor Party doesn't have to do any negative campaigning at the moment because the Liberal Party is doing it all by itself very, very well. But it can't just be a case where everybody else is wrong and Scott Morrison is absolutely right. And Morrison keeps brushing this off by suggesting that these are all attacks that are coming about because people are just being disappointed because they haven't got what they want or they've got an axe to grind but it just seems like there's quite a few people that are disappointed within the Liberal Party and too many people are holding axes and just doesn't seem to be a good recipe for success at the moment. Parties go through this stuff. The Labor Party has split three times in its history and they were awful lifelong feuding splits that led to violence and led to bitterness so it, it does happen. The Liberal Party tends to do all this stuff very quietly and you get very subtle takeovers by the party. But that requires subtlety and nuance. John Howard's appointment to the Treasury in 1977 was one of those starts. Malcolm Fraser was of the older Deaconite tradition. And from there, the party has just gone further and further to the right, federally and in New South Wales. I note that Gutwine has stood down in Tasmania. Uh, and that's something that we probably should take a look at in our next podcast. We're just waiting for the dust to settle over that because it was a shock announcement with no real seeming reason except that he wanted to spend more time with his family. Maybe for the first time that's true. I hope it is. But the Liberal Party, because it's less formally organised than the Labour Party, not to say it's not organised and it's not to say that it doesn't have factions, but the factions aren't as openly stated. When it splits, it tends to split really, really badly. And the civil war it went through in the 1980s, which was essentially Peacock trying to hold up the Deaconite position and Howard trying to hold up the Readite position or the neoliberal position, which left us with Alexander Downer as opposition leader, shows just how nasty these things can get. They couldn't win an election because they weren't stable, they weren't disciplined, they weren't capable of managing themselves. Both Peacock and Howard went close on a couple of occasions, but couldn't outdo the electoral power that was Bob Hawke anyway. But they were never going to do it while there was that instability. And of course, it's easier to win from government in Australia. That has got to be remembered. 
the Liberal Party is in a mess. It distresses me, not because I'm a member of the party or ever been a member of the party or even would consider being a member of the party. But I do believe in the power of grassroots. I do believe in the people who feel strongly enough that they throw in their membership dollars and work actively for the party. And ultimately, it's those people who get hurt to satisfy Scott Morrison's insatiable ego. Well, it seems like Scott Morrison has decided that he doesn't need the grassroots Liberal Party membership, certainly in New South Wales, but he will be pushing this idea through the electoral campaign that the past few years in Australia have been quite difficult, and they certainly have been, but the government has still managed to pull Australia through this pandemic. Well, the other issue is that the pandemic is still going. It's into its third year now, and there's no sign of it actually disappearing completely and compared to many countries around the world Australia has managed the pandemic very well but it could have been so much better there were so many problems with the vaccination rollout and quarantine issues and we've reported on all of these issues over the past year and a half but the other issue is that the electorate doesn't tend to reward politicians for what they consider to be simply doing their job or the job that they were expected to do and this is what Labor experienced during the successful management of the global financial crisis in 2008 but it, it could be argued that the federal government hasn't really done the job properly or in the best way possible or the way that the electorate expected them to perform. And, and that's exactly what the Liberal Party found out in the South Australia election just a few weeks ago where they were tossed out. And generally, there's far more pressure on a prime minister com- when compared to an opposition leader, and especially when they're starting so far behind in the opinion polls. But in most of his media appearances, Morrison appears under pressure, he appears angry, he's a little bit ruffled, and trying to spin his way out of every problem. In contrast, Anthony Albanese appears far more relaxed and seemingly confident, and you'd much rather be in his position than Scott Morrison's. But having spent the past 25 minutes just outlining all of these negatives and how much trouble the government is actually in and how divided and disorganised the government is, there's still a chance that the coalition can win the next election. And we've seen this same story back in 2016 and 2019, as you mentioned before, David, when the coalition was littered with ruin, division and incompetence, yet managed to record narrow election victories. So we can't rule anything out at this stage. We, we can't rule anything out. There's a lot less talk of miracles this time, whereas before there was that smug kind of underlying that he knew something was happening. I'm not seeing that this time. And I suspect that everything that he hoped would happen was derailed by natural disasters. The actual floods aren't directly his fault, although climate change is a big part of it. But it's one of those events, dear boy events, that a British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan talked about when people asked him what being Prime Minister was, that he he just hasn't dealt with well. And not only has he not dealt with well, he hasn't worked out how to deal with it at all. There'd be a group of people in the community, and I think a large group of people in the community now, who think that he is working for somebody else other than the Australian public. And I think there's a lot of credence to that. Of course, a lot of that goes from the totally loopy right through to the some of this is kind of documented and deserves more scrutiny type stuff. And we did talk before about John Howard announcing the election in 2004 and asking who do you trust on the economy and all of his problems disappearing. But Scott Morrison's problems could actually become far worse. And a lot of these issues depend on whether the media decides to act or not. 
Jordan Shanks, also known as Friendly Geordies, he's released another video and this time it's about the infamous prayer room at Parliament House and it's not allegations that he's making, he's just reiterating the information from a leaked report produced for the Department of Finance by Spark Helmore Lawyers and it contains information about sexual acts performed by Tim Wilson, James Newberry, I haven't heard really much about him. He's an MP from the Victoria Parliament. What he was actually doing at Parliament House in Canberra is a little bit unclear, although we, I guess we're getting a better idea about what he was doing there. Christopher Pine is also mentioned in this report. There's a reference to male escorts being ordered by MPs and appearing in this prayer room. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that any of these sexual acts actually occurred. It's just information contained in the report titled independent investigation into alleged inappropriate workplace behaviours. There's also information in this friendly Geordie's video about the behaviour of the Australian Federal Police in trying to cover up all of these issues. And then there's more reports about sexual acts in this prayer room and different MPs and Liberal Party staffers appearing in this prayer room as well. Now, whenever I've gone to work in my professional career or if I've ever gone to work in an office somewhere, I've always gone there to do work stuff rather than thinking about performing a sexual act on someone in the office, but maybe there are just different rules and expectations for politicians in Canberra. Some of this debate did devolve down to homophobia, either making jokes about the act itself or adding an extra level to the lack of character shown. And this was used by a couple of commentators to sort of say, you know, this homophobia is unacceptable, so we should let these men make their own life choices and be who they are. Now, that's true. As you said, it's not about the actual behavior. It's where and when the behavior was. What you do on your own time with your own money that doesn't affect your work is your business. Malcolm Turnbull, and a few of the dumber journalists laughed at this, said it was he was hinting at Barnaby Joyce at the time. He may well have known about some of these allegations too, that there are world powers who use these types of people to get information improperly. And people can be easily compromised, which we've found have been. Now, I don't know who they were bringing into Parliament House, whether they were agents of another power or whether they were just the usual sex workers who had no interest in anything but doing the work that they were paid for. But it shows a lack of discipline. It shows a lack of propriety. It shows a lack of professionalism. Again, not the act itself, but when and where the act was done. Wouldn't matter if they were bringing in female sex workers or even their own life partners. It's just not acceptable and it's not on. And Jordan in his video, which has been taken down by YouTube because YouTube was threatened with defamation, interestingly enough, said that he'd passed on a couple of big stories because he knew that people wouldn't listen to them and so passed them on to other more high-profile, more inverted commas, legitimate journalists so that they'd get the airtime. He said this one was so big it didn't matter who would cover it, it would have to hit the airwaves. And the funny thing was it hasn't hit it in the way that I think he was expecting. And of course, there are some journalists who are tied up in this type of stuff anyway. 
Well, you know, I'm not trying to moralise about this issue or anything like that. The whole thing is, well, it's happening at Parliament House, it's happening in this dedicated prayer room, and whatever you do in your own spare time, well, it doesn't have to actually be at Parliament House. Go back to your hotel room or go back to the many flats or apartments that are rented out in Canberra or the ones that they actually pay for with their parliamentary entitlement. Go back there. It doesn't have to be at Parliament House. So I'm not making a definition or a decision about or moralising about the actual acts itself. It's just that it just seems unseemly to actually do it at Parliament House and in a prayer room. And and, th- and we saw this with the final months of the New South Wales Labor Party in, when they were in government in 2011, that they were getting all up to all sorts of activities at Parliament House, MPs dancing on tabletops in their underpants and having these major drunken alcohol fueled parties in Parliament House. And it just seems, it, well, it is unseemly. It shouldn't be happening there. If you want to do all of these sort of things, we'll go ahead and do that, but just don't do it in Parliament House house yeah exactly seasoned listeners of this broadcast will hear my uh natural reticence or prudery coming through and the prudery is on me at i i just don't want to know (laughs) i don't care but i just don't want to know but it's again where and when during work is unconscionable at parliament house is unconscionable in a thing called a prayer room which parliament house shouldn't have I, I mean, I don't know the personal practices of our the Muslim members. They have to pray at certain times of the day. They can roll out their prayer mat in their office as long as they're facing Mecca. That's fine. I don't believe Parliament House should have any form of a prayer room, and even if it's a joke, it's a little bit of a insult to a lot of the Liberal Party's followers who are devout Christians, who are no doubt horrified at this behaviour for whatever reason. It shows how little they think about their members, their voters, their followers, the people who they're supposedly representing. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next... We talked to Jane Caro about public education, aged care, and the Reason Party, and her campaign to move into federal politics. I don't pretend to know the ways of the world. The means to an end seems the way. Who has the most of whatever is best? All the better. May the best man win. An eye for an eye is a blind I wasn't born to follow I'm nobody's fool Any other man Can soon unsolved Truth is seldom found When a woman is around Just a dream.
Over the past few months, we've been focusing on the independent candidates who will be running in the federal election, and all of them are candidates in the House of Representatives. And if the election is closer than what we're expecting it to be, and if these independents can win some of those seats, well, they might just be in a position to decide which political party forms government, just like Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott did in 2010. And running as an independent candidate or macro party in the Senate is quite different. For a start, you're not in a position to decide who forms government in a hung parliament, but you do have the opportunity to use the Senate as a springboard for the issues that you want to bring along with you into parliament. And if you're in the position of having the casting vote, just like Senator Brian Harradine did in the 1990s, you can virtually decide which government legislation gets passed and which ones get rejected. So there's still a great deal of influence a Senator can have in Parliament. I think the Senate's probably a smarter move. In the interview, uh, Jane said that she thought she could probably amass a, a wider range of voters statewide than she could in the seat that she's in. And that makes a whole lot of sense. And as Brian Harradine has shown, uh, as the Liberal Party in 1975 showed, you can have a lot of power in the Senate and a lot of influence for good. Legislation can be turned back, it can be amended. You can make deals in such a way that you do actually improve things. This is not to say that the people who've interviewed running for lower house seats aren't doing worthy work either. The Senate is harder to get into because you've got a campaign statewide, really, whereas in a local seat, you have the, the boundaries of that seat. But Jane has a fairly national following, so it, it probably makes a bit more sense for her to use her profile to go for a Senate seat. Jane Caro is a social commentator, writer, academic and a public education advocate and she's running as a Senate candidate for the Reason Party and David Lewis caught up with her to talk about public education, aged care and the upcoming election campaign. Welcome to New Politics, Jane. Thank you for having me. So what made you decide to run for politics at all? Well, quite a lot of things, I suppose. I put my toe in the water in 2019 when I talked to the voices of Warringa about possibly standing there, but we mutually decided that that was probably not the right move at that time. And indeed, Zali Stegel won that seat from Tony Abbott, so I think that decision was a good one because she's certainly done a great job as an independent. But, you know, I've been thinking for a while that I really was terribly disturbed about the direction in which this country is heading, our lack of action, meaningful action on climate change, the fact that we've had governments for almost a decade who regard climate change with really thinly, thinly disguised contempt is terrifying to me. I've got grandchildren and I really feel mortified that my generation is going to leave a planet to our grandchildren that's in a far worse state than the planet our grandparents left to us. And it horrifies me that we have a government that if it will do anything about it has to be dragged there kicking and screaming. There are also a whole lot of other issues, the increasing divide between people who have and those who have not, uh, the situation with women, uh, their financial security, their physical safety, and again, the lack of real concern amongst the people in positions of power. Yes, they've been forced by the noise of many people to take some sorts, sort of action, but really we know 
this is not something they care about really. So it was all those things. And then the Reason Party rang me and asked me if I would consider being their candidate for the Senate at the next election. And I thought long and hard about it. And I thought the Senate sounded like a good idea. And uh, so I decided that it was time I put my money where my mouth was. What and I said, yes. will you bring to the Senate, uh, firstly, for the people of New South Wales? Well, what I'll bring to the Senate, I think, is what I've been doing for the last two decades, which is speaking clearly and, I hope, engagingly about the issues of the day from my perspective and from the perspective, given the following I've created, of a lot of people who feel like their views don't get properly represented in the parliament, a voice for climate change, a voice for women's rights and equality for all, a voice for public education, which I think is sadly lacking in our national parliament. We really don't have many champions of our public schools and they are becoming more grossly underfunded by the minute. This just past budget took um, over half a billion dollars from public education while giving 2.6 billion to already overfunded private schools. The logic behind that utterly defeats me, uh, given that public schools educate the most expensive and the most vulnerable children. Uh, It's an outrageous policy that the federal government pursues constantly. Uh, And they also insult public schools whenever they get the chance, which is despicable as well. So public education, public health, public housing, public spaces, public transport, I'm very much of the view that we need to preserve and enhance the things we own in common. Uh, I'm not a mad fan of privatising absolutely everything. There are things that should be run privately, definitely, but there are certainly things that never should be, law and order being a big one of those. We should not make profit out of people's suffering and misery. We should not make profit out of offshore detention, things like that. Shocking, shocking to me. Aged care, uh, that's something else that we really need to look into the profit motive, early childhood education too. So there's lots of areas there that I feel strongly about. And I will have no vested interests, no, nothing to make me not speak the truth as I see it. So I think what I can bring to the Senate is 65 years of being interested in issues, in being interested in politics, in being interested in the world and uh, being fairly uh, skilled at writing about, speaking about and arguing and persuading uh, along those ideas that I believe in and holding uh, people to account and being a voice for those areas of our society and those who share my kind of views who very rarely get to speak loudly. We've already touched on this a bit, but I thought we could talk more generally on a couple of your passions, uh, one of them being public education, of course. How would you reform it in Australia? Oh, well, there's what I'd love to do and what I think is possible. They're two different things. One of the things I think we could really consider, because no one... No country anywhere in the world funds private schools the way we do. We're by far and away the highest funder of private education in the OECD, no question. We're one of the lower funders of public education, but one of the highest funders of Mm. private education. Quite extraordinary. And we really do it without much of reciprocal contribution from those schools. So I think one of the things we could certainly consider is to have some sort of... And and also, when you... 
the public subsidy of private supply is always inflationary. It actually sends prices up, not down. We've seen this in childcare subsidies. We've seen this in the first homeowners scheme. And we've seen it spectacularly in private schools because although the justification is it will keep the fees down, it just doesn't. Private school fees go up exponentially year on year on year on year. And the reason for that is we don't insist that in return for the public money they get, they keep their fees down. We don't put a cap on it. Uh, If you don't put a cap on the fees that are charged, then it's got to be inflationary because all that happens is the private supplier, it's Marketing 101, will charge what the uh, market will bear. So they simply take the subsidy, thanks very much, put it in their back pocket and then go on to charge what they were going to charge anyway. So it doesn't bring prices down. So one of the first things we could look at doing is putting a cap on the fees that can be charged in return for public funding. So in other words, if you publicly fund above the agreed amount of costs to educate a child in a uh, public secondary or public primary school, we could start to have a sliding cap on how much public funding you get above that, uh, depending on the fees that you charge. Quite a few of the high fare schools would then opt out of the public funding. They would continue. I mean, you do not need public funding if you're charging 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, $50,000 a year to educate children who probably cost between six dollars to $8,000 a year to educate because private schools overwhelmingly cream off the the easiest and cheapest to teach students. It's the public schools that carry the responsibility for educating over 90% of our most expensive to teach children who are, of course, the children with designated needs uh, such as disability or um, remote and rural or non-English speaking background or, of course, um, low socioeconomic backgrounds. Those are the kids that need much more um, input, much more funding, smaller classes, more teachers, more remedial work. They're the ones that cost the most money and yet they're the ones we put the least money against. So the problem with the amount of money we give to private schools is there's no discernible benefit from it. It doesn't improve our educational results, doesn't generally improve most people's choice, and it doesn't keep the fees down. So one of the first things I'd be arguing is give me your justification. How? And and the old idea, oh, their parents pay tax, therefore they should get the same funding as public schools makes no sense at all. They pay tax and their kid is always welcome in a public school, but if they decide not to access that publicly funded place, that's up to them. But they don't get to hang on to the funding to spend it wherever they like. That doesn't happen in any other area of Australian taxation reform. You can't say, I know I pay money to public transport, therefore when I buy my car, you should give me public funding for buying my car because I'm taking the pressure off public transport. That's just a nonsense argument used all the time. So that's one of the things that I would be bringing right up to people in the parliament. And if I came across things like in this budget, wow, I mean, I would be doing everything I can to reveal how dreadful that is. I mean, we currently have a situation where not a single public school in Australia, bar a handful in uh, the ACT, are funded to the agreed minimum resource standard. Yet every private school in Australia, bar a handful in the Northern Territory, are funded way above the minimum resource standard. This is shocking. How you justify it, I don't know. It's as if we've taken a bunch of kids, 70% of Australia's children, and said, well, you're going to be the proles. You're not going to get a chance to use your talents. 
that's a terrible If we can move on to another passion of yours. Older people, you've, you've been long been an advocate for older people. Where do you think improvements might be made in terms of policy for older people? Well, I think, again, we must stop starving. It seems we starve the unfortunate children who are born behind the eight ball, you know, in their early years. We starve them. And then when they end up in old age, it's often the same group, we continue to starve them. I mean, it's just dreadful. It's as if we blame the poor for being poor. We blame uh, the people who were born less fortunate than other people because no child is disadvantaged through any of their own doing. They're disadvantaged because they were born into the, a family that's been less able to negotiate their way through the world than another child's family. And the problem with Australia is we've now created a situation where it's becoming harder and harder for people to escape from that trajectory of misfortune, lack of opportunity, uh, lack of resources put behind their opportunities all the way through their life until they get to old age. So really trapping people into generational poverty and generational struggle, which is just dreadful. So I think that at the other end of life, I, I feel almost exactly the same. We should be caring for older people in the same ways we should care for everybody throughout their lives helping them rather than handicapping them. So first of all, we need aged care homes that are not run for profit. We need aged care homes that are run to benefit their residents. And if that means we have to subsidise them up the wazoo, then that's what we need to do. That is just what a civilised society should do. And I do not buy the argument that's given, oh, who's going to pay for it? We can't afford it. And they always use that. It's like um, Albo's centrepiece policy in his budget reply speech was aged care. More money, more funding for aged care. Excellent policy. And the immediate question every journalist asks, well, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And somebody said to me, why do they do that? And I said, well, what else can they do? They're supposed to criticise. That's their job. You can't say to somebody, well, who cares about old people? Why are we giving them any money? Because that's unacceptable. So you have to say, how are we going to pay for it? But how are we going to pay for it actually is code for nobody cares about old people, so why are we putting any funding into them? In the same way as whenever you suggest anything more for public schools, the same, how are we going to pay for it? Because nobody cares about poor kids. But nobody ever says about the $2.6 billion going to already overfunded private schools. How are we going to pay for that? That question doesn't get asked because we approve of giving money to the already wealthy for some peculiar reason and we don't approve of giving money to those who are doing it hard because we blame them because we've drunk the neoliberal kool-aid and you were talking about they don't want to share power and knowledge in this pyramid of hierarchy that we're in and building of a class divide well the problems with people at the end of their life often those in aged care homes getting six dollars a day spent on their food for example that's exactly what's going on. And we are a terribly ageist society. We have a belief that once people get above a certain age, and for women that age is earlier than it is for men, they're no longer of value. They no longer have anything to offer. They're a bit dull and dowdy. They can't teach an old dog new tricks, all that nonsense. Uh, they don't understand tech. And we kind of put them out to pasture. And for a great many uh, older people, both men and women, 
That means they find it very hard to get another job. That means they find themselves very quickly on benefits, particularly women who are not because of the way that super was set up by men, for men and about men. They've not amassed the kind of super they needed to uh, help them uh, when they get older. So they find themselves living for the first time in their lives in their late 50s and 60s on whatever Orwellian name we've given to Centrelink unemployment benefits this week. I think it may be still called Job Seeker. It was New Start before. They'll come up with something equally ghastly soon. And those women are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. The majority of older single women living in private rental accommodation, and by single women I mean divorced, widowed, never married, are living in poverty, the majority of them. So we have set particularly women up because of financial insecurity all their lives to a poverty-stricken old age. It is unconscionable that we should do that because it is generally a direct consequence of the fact that they have put caring for others ahead of their right to earn an income. They don't have as much super because they looked after small children. Then they looked after aged parents. If anyone had a disability or a chronic illness, they looked after them. If they did go to work, they often went to work in the caring professions, which are chronically underpaid. They often worked casual and part-time to try and juggle around their caring obligations. We've set them up to fail and now we blame them. Now we put them on the cashless debit card and corral their spending if they're in certain parts of Australia because we say that they must be poor because they were profligate, because they don't know how to manage their finances. What we do is cruel, punitive and stupid and we do it to older people in the same way as we do it to children who have less opportunities than other children and often those children are going to grow up one day, I hope not, but if we don't change what we're doing, then they will, to be those same disadvantaged older people at the end of their life. This is shocking. This is not Australia and we have enough money. We're one of the richest countries in one of the richest periods of human history. We could solve this if we wanted to. We have the money. We just don't choose to spend it that way. We'd rather spend, what, how much money are we paying the French for not buying their submarines? 5.5, yeah. We'd rather do that. Is Reason running in other parts of Australia or is it New South Wales based or can people listening outside? No, Reason is standing in Victoria in the Senate and in Queensland in the Senate and it also has some representatives, I think in only in Victoria that I'm aware of, uh, standing for seats in the House of Representatives. So Reason is actually making quite a big push at this point, which I think is really good because we need some more, we, we desperately need evidence-based policy making uh, for the first time, I think, ever, if we're going to solve the problems that are staring us in the face. Whistling Dixie and hoping for the best, praying to your particular God of choice, uh, sending thoughts and prayers, doing all that kind of stuff ain't going to cut it. It never has cut it, but it's definitely not going to cut it for the future. We have to face our problems, face reality, and really tackle them the way those people who work in all of the sectors, who know exactly what needs doing, tell us needs to be done. Listen to them. They know the answers. We have the money. We could do this. That was Jane Caro. She's running for the Senate at this federal election. You can find out more about her Senate campaign and the Reason Party by going to her website, janecaroforreason.com.au. 
That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.